Thank you for tuning in to The Coolest Show. I am your host, Rev Yearwood, and we have a special episode for you. Did you know that only 1.3% of the U.S.-based climate funding goes to BIPOC-led groups, Black, Brown, Indigenous, and people of color-led groups? There's a Climate Funders Justice Pledge that is out there that calls on foundations to do better in the fight for climate justice. And as you know, if you knew better, you would do better. And so there is a group, the Donors of Color Network, a philanthropic group that is dedicated to funding racial equity efforts, has asked the top 40 climate funders to disclose exactly what percentage of their funding is during these past two years went to organizations led by BIPOC communities and to pledge at least 30% of their climate donations to such groups. This news broke headways and has been taking the environmental philanthropic world by storm. And so today we have as our guest, Daniel Dean, Climate Advisor of Donors of Color Network, and Mia Yoshitani, Executive Director of the Asian Pacific Environmental Network, to have this conversation, to talk about this effort to fund racially diverse climate groups and how that is getting the momentum. Welcome to The Coolest Show. This is The Coolest Show brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. It's the coolest show you know. Keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show you know. In your ear, yeah, respect the expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know. It's the Hip Hop Caucus. Well, first and foremost, I- I'm excited. Uh, Mia and Danielle, to have you both on The Coolest Show. Welcome to The Coolest Show. Thank you so much. I'm really, really happy to be here. Thank you, Rev. It's an honor to be asked. Really appreciate it. And I mentioned, Danielle, you are one of my favorite people from the island of... I I said earlier, offline, philanthropy, but you are my favorite people from the island of Trinidad and Tobago, period. Uh, and I would say that is mutual, of course, um, although I know it's, you know, technically Caribbean American, but we're going to claim you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, I thank you for that, <laughs> uh, that, that claiming um, in that aspect. But for folks who might not know, please tell the, tell the audience, who is Danielle D? Um. Danielle Dean is a little girl from the islands that's trying to figure out how she ended up on a show with Reverend Yearwood and Mia Yoshitani. Um, <laughs> I'm very uh, blessed currently. Um, I'm a consultant to a number of foundations at the intersection of climate um, and justice and economic equity. And that's been my career the past uh, 20 something years or so. Um, when I was growing up in Trinidad and Tobago, oil money paid for my education. And I also saw what it was doing to the gorgeous speeches, which if you haven't been to, you should put on your bucket list. Um, that uh, 
and, and what it was doing to people, what it was doing to animals. And before I had the words for it, I was trying to figure out um, how do we get the energy, the resources we need in a way that is fair and just and delivers um, for people. Um, and that is what has continued to drive me. Um, I've been in and out of uh, philanthropy at different foundations for about 10 years. Um, I've also had the pleasure of working for the uh, Obama administration um, at the Department of Energy, at the Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy Office, and currently on a National Academies panel um, that is looking at how you accelerate decarbonization. And big picture, one of the things it says is justice is critical. Most importantly, though, the best moments, um, some of the best moments I've had career-wise have been working with people um, like me and getting to know people um, like you who I have learned so much from and continue to learn from as I try to be an, an ally in the fight for a just transition. And our other guest, Mia Yoshitani, uh, tell us about yourself. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for having me on your show. Um, you know, I've been a uh, uh, partner in crime with uh, Danielle for a long time. We've known each other for a while and she's been an amazing um, ally in philanthropy and, and I've been following your, your career and your show for a long time, Reverend Yeroid, and appreciate all that you, you bring to the movement. Um, so Mia Yoshitani, I'm currently the executive director of the Asian Pacific Environmental Network, APEN, based in uh, Oakland, Ohlone Territory. Um, I actually grew up in the Midwest, so I'm, I'm from the suburbs of Chicago, and I grew up um, in a pretty white suburb of Chicago, not the place where you think um, you're going to learn a lot about environmental justice, but my dad was uh, an environmental engineer, and he did basically hazardous waste cleanup. That was his job to like go and figure out how to clean up some of the most toxic, some of the super fun sites in the area and some of the most uh, polluted places in, in, in our state. And, um, you know, I learned from that, that where we choose to put our most polluting industries are in the neighborhoods, in the places where um, people of color live and go to work and go to school. And kind of learned really from an early age, you know, that the environment is not just about the, you know, beautiful places we want to take our kids camping, or it's not just about trees and uh, dolphins and whales, you know, it's actually about people. It's about um, our right to have a healthy, just and clean environment where we live, work, play and pray. And, you know, I kind of came into this work um, with that as a, a founding value and, and, and really came in as, as an organizer. I, I came to APEN as a youth organizer in my early 20s, probably after having been um, lucky enough to be at the um, first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit back in 1991. I was a youth participant um, at the summit and got, uh, was just an amazing um, time in the environmental justice movement, in the founding of a lot of the environmental justice networks that um, have over the past, you know, 30 years have built so much power uh, for environmental justice communities around the country and, and was able to 
meet and be, be mentored by a lot of the um, people who I so respect and have learned so much from about, about organizing for power in our communities for, for, for our rights, for um, a clean, healthy, just environment. And I've been at APEN almost ever since. Well, Mia, I'm so glad to have you and Danielle, you as well. Um, I'm excited for this conversation. Um, uh, and I want to just get into into it, actually. Um, let me actually start with you, Mia. Um, give me a little bit of history for those who are listening about the uniqueness of the EJ movement um, in California. Yeah, well, um, I think a lot of people confuse environmental justice as being a, a sort of a, a side note of the conservation movement. And I want to start, first of all, by like pulling that apart and making sure that um, we're talking about the origins of the environmental justice movement in California and across the country as being in, in the civil rights movement um, and not not necessarily in um, in the traditional environmental conservation movement where, you know, sure in California, um, there's a lot of history of, of, of um, conservation that has really racist past. But I would say for environmental justice, um, you know, it goes back way back to early days of industrialized uh, land grabs for for the gold rush, for you know, um, removing indigenous people from their land for 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 resources like gold. Um, it's one of the biggest oil states in the country still. Um, in I think in the turn of the century, like 1900s, California was the number one oil state in the country, and still is. Uh, pretty high up there as an oil producer. Um, you know, there were the history after the 40s and 50s of um, building uh, highways all throughout um, the, 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 the state that have um, since that time really exacerbated inequality in communities or building freeways straight through neighborhoods and um, exacerbating things like, uh, you know, housing, redlining and housing. You know, so California has, unfortunately, a really rich history of environmental injustice from toxics in agriculture and pesticides um, to, you know, oil refineries to fra oil fracking to, um, you know, everything from, you know, lead in water and to, to housing discrimination and, and discriminatory racist policing policies. Like California has actually, um, unfortunately kind of been at the forefront of a lot of that. Um, and at the same time, California has been at the forefront of a lot of um, organizing for power in these communities um, to defend uh, people's human rights to the health, wealth and self-determination of their communities. Everything from like, I think, uh, you know, all the way back to indigenous um, fighting back, indigenous communities fighting back against, uh, you know, the, the um, genocide and oppression of, of, of being removed from their lands and, and 
you know, killed for, for their, for the resources on their lands to, um, you know, United Farm Workers was born in California. Um, Cesar Chavez, Larry Itlong, a uh, uh, Filipino uh, who was uh, also kind of one of the forgotten figures in the organizing of the United Farm Workers. Um, Kettleman City in the 80s, uh, a huge environmental justice win in the Central Valley, uh, a massive toxic waste incinerator that was being planned for a community that is already um, really devastated by pesticide use, by other toxic um, pollution. Um, and, and, you know, it's a story of, of like so many other places, um, what we call cumulative impacts, where, you know, we have um, communities who are living not just next to a refinery, but they're living next to a freeway, they're living next to you know, a uh, um, a school that has lead in their in the pipes. There, they have. You're going to jobs where they are contaminated at work, living next to a Superfund site and and gardening on top of uh, poisonous land and fishing out of the bay with uh, you know poison fish. So it's it's got that history, and it also has this amazing history of resistance and this history of organizing for power. No, thank you for that. And the reason why this is such an important conversation here on The Coolest Show is because we need to figure out particularly where the work has been happening, which you laid out so well, but also how we are funding this work and what has happened to that over the past years and how we can bring these two things together, which is why my sister Danielle um, I guess maybe if you can kind of give for the audience just an idea on uh, philanthropy and like what is what is your view on the role of that in this conversation? So philanthropy is supposed to be risk capital for social change. The deal that is struck is, hello, rich folks, you made your resources and uh, you could give it to the government and taxes, but if you go do something for the public good with it, then uh, you don't have to pay taxes on it. And you can decide to do with it what you want. And I went through all the way my master's degree, through my master's degree, not understanding how critical a role philanthropy plays in fostering social movements. And so when I finished um, my master's degree, I've done a stint in the private sector and was trying to figure out talking to mentors, what do I do next to try to make a difference? Having reassured myself that just making money was not enough to get me going in the morning. Um, one of my mentors said, well, how about philanthropy? And I said, ladies, who lunch? Haven't been in New York, you see the Met Gala, you know, and I was like, like, you know me, like, why would I want to do philanthropy? And she said, well, where do you think most of the money to fund the Sierra Club and Environmental Defense Fund and all these organizers, uh, all these organizations come from? And I said, well, you know, they send you a thing in the mail and you, I do 25 bucks. Sometimes they give you a free, you know, hat or something, right? Um, I had no idea um, of how important philanthropy foundations were behind the scenes in a lot of the ills that uh, Mia just talked about. And 
consequently also how influential they can be if they change. So to give you a number, um, the biggest climate funders, Hewlett Foundation, where I used to work, um, Packard Foundation, people know these names, you hear them on, on NPR, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, et cetera. The, the, the biggest foundations, just the biggest ones, not all, put about a billion dollars a year and they decide which NGOs they go to. That's very serious money and it's growing, by the way. Um, the percentage of those dollars, a study got done recently by uh, Professor Anna Bautista, amazing professor at the New School. And she looked at 12 of the biggest ones. They gave away about a billion dollars. And the percent that went to organizations that are run by and serving people of color and working on justice, the work that Mia does, um, was 1.3%. It's mm. a shocking number. And it's a shocking failure for uh, a, a, a group of uh, foundations that are been being given money that's supposed to benefit the public trust. And this is not a new problem. Um, organizations and the 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 um, uh, environmental justice organizations and leaders have been talking about this for a while. And what we've what's exciting about what I'm working on right now with the Donors of Color Network and with Mia's guidance um, is an effort that challenges foundations to do two things. It challenges them to say, okay, we know this collective number, but that data is a little old. Tell us two things. One, what percentage of your dollars, big funders, are went to climate justice organizations or any kind of justice organization that's working on climate and energy in the last two years? Tell us what that number is and tell us within three months because you have a lot of money in the bank. You could probably figure it out quickly if you wanted to, right? And secondly, within the next 12 to 24 months, so within one to two years, let's get that number up to 30%. If we do that, um, we will allow Biden, President Biden, who with guidance from Mia and others now um, is working to try to advance not just climate change, but justice 40, a just transition that benefits everybody, we will win. If philanthropy doesn't shift, um, we won't. And one of the reasons why the oil companies have been able to have as much disruptive influence and spread as much disinformation and block so much climate legislation is because the organizations representing those who are most affected and whose genius we need to help shape policies and do the organizing um, have not been getting anything close uh, to their fair share. The good news is we've got some foundations like the Kresge Foundation that have said, sign me up. And if you go to climate.donorsofcolor.org, climate.donorsofcolor.org, um, you can click on who's pledged and you'll be able to see who said yes, who said, we'll get back to you, but they took our call, um, and who hasn't responded uh, to us yet. And so, again, I'm so grateful to you, Rev, for giving us this platform to let people know, because um, the other thing we do on that website is we feature amazing organizations and networks around the country that are there that could be funded tomorrow. 
um, that will make a difference for the change that we need. Well, Danielle and Mia, I'm, first of all, I'm so glad you're here and we're having this conversation. Thank you, Danielle, for this year of transparency. Uh, you know, those numbers, as you know, are, are just astounding when you first hear them. I mean, these are not small numbers. You used to, you didn't say million. You went to the B word. You went to the billion. And so I guess before we get to the solution, and you started to go there, and we're going to, we, we, we want to go there. Because I actually, for those who are listening, I really believe on what Donors of Color is doing. Um, I believe that's the solution for what needs to happen for a lot of reasons, and we're going to get to that. But Mia... This is this. Let's just keep it real for a second, because we have to deal with the harm. There's some harm, and what Danielle is saying, right? There's some real harm, and the passing over, the the uh, the old saying of folks being able to write a proposal on a napkin and get to that billion dollars, and other folks doing a thesis and literally not even getting it. There's some harm, as many of you know. I was very close to Cecil. Over at WEAC, and I'm I still grieve because I think that I've seen so many like him and Damu who have died early um, because literally they're being put into impossible situations. So, so Mia, I guess I'm going to have to come to you because you're here in this position. And after hearing that, and also I guess to frame it this way too, as a follow up question on the EJ Summit. Um, you know, this year marks the 30th anniversary of the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit. And so, Mia, you mentioned you had the opportunity to attend the summit as a young person. So just kind of looking at that, would you say that the those principles of the EJ drafted at the summit have remained the foundation of, of the movement? Is there some recentering? And after hearing what Danielle said, have we lost, has something gone wrong in those 30 years? plus years that we haven't literally, that folks have died within the movement because they were underfunded in doing this work. Wow, yeah. I really appreciate you bringing in Cecil's name and and Damu and Dana Alston and Jean Gauna and like so many more of our movement leaders and heroes who really, um, yeah, I mean, there's the, uh, the, the burden of, bore, bore the burden of so much, carrying so much of the load of trying to build our movements with so few resources. Um, and I, so acknowledging that, um, and that makes me really you know, it makes me sad because that has, I don't think that much has changed. The, that devastating number that Danielle gave, like there's, that has real consequences. Um, and it has other consequences, a couple of the biggest, which are, we are not winning. There's a direct relationship between who we're funding, what those strategies and what that organizing and building power could do for the movement and what we are, what we're robbing ourselves of. We're robbing ourselves of 
the success of the movement. <laughs> like, and so much of these, the work that's being done in these, in the frontline communities that have been hardest hit um, is ignoring the solutions that are actually the solutions that are required for us to get through this crisis, to rebuild our communities, to build in uh, the resilience and the, uh, it's like when, when, it's just when, when people of color win on environment and climate, we all win. And the fact that philanthropy has not just ignored the strategic importance and, and vitalness of our movements um, is, it just speaks to the institutional racism in philanthropy that's the same institutional racism in our other institutions, in government, in education, in corporate America, you know. So it, it, philanthropy doesn't, is, not a part, is not set apart from that. It, it's at the center of that. And the other thing that I think is harmful um, is philanthropy is not neutral. Like it, it's not that they just don't fund things. It's they actually fund harmful things too. So it's not just that we have to shift more resources, which we absolutely have to. We have to get our heads around this and and do what is needed for to to address these multiple crises of the economy, of the of climate, of uh, uh, of white supremacy and racism in our communities, we have to address this this crisis. But we also have to stop the harm. We have to, and philanthropy has been complicit, and or not just complicit, has been promoting also harmful solutions that that not just stop progress in our communities, but they actually continue the harm in our communities by supporting. Um, policies that that will uh, constant further concentrate pollution. They support policies that um, you know ensure that uh, that communities of color are continue to be sacrifice zones for um, for environmental pollution. Um, and they also continue to support strategies of organizations that have no relationship or business in our communities, giving them money to do work in our communities that does not fit the needs or the solutions of our communities. So it's not just that it's disrespectful, it's morally wrong, it's strategically wrong. It's just reinforcing the harm that has already existed in our communities, and it, we we have to do better. We have to do better, um, and you, you're so right on that. And this really this this next question goes to you, um, Mia, and also Danielle. It's the T word, and that is trust. Um, um, because what you're asking me, and we're asking the audience now listening. And they're hearing this, a lot of them are hearing this sometime for the first time, and particularly there are many in our community who have, who have known this, as you mentioned, for years, um, um, mm-hmm. for the 30 years that we've been doing this work. 
And so that T word, that trust word. So I guess I'll start with, with you, Mia, in this aspect. Um, and then Danielle, follow into this. And how do we trust those who are supposed to be our allies when they've seen us go through this suffering? Uh, you, Mia, I know, are on the WeJack, and that's the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Congratulations on that. Um, but that also comes with the question of knowing all that you know and the wisdom you have. The question goes like, why did you feel the need to join an advisory council that reports to the president? You know, why is it important to go and, and get that connection um, in addition to what's going on in California? Um, why, why, and, and, I was, and I'm with you here too, so folks, full disclosure, I'm on the board for a number of these large uh, uh, green groups that, that Danielle mentioned. I'm on the I see that they get over $100 million a year. I ask myself the same question. Why are we in these spaces? Why, why, are, we, why are we in these spaces um, when we are not, when our people are not getting the resources? And then they use us in these spaces to say, look, we got people of color on our board. Look, we got people of color on our advisory council. Look, you can trust us. And they don't, they continue not to give our community money year mm -hmm. after year. When does that stop? First, you, Mia, and then obviously, Danielle, that, is to go right into your donor of colors network and and the pledge here, but the trust. Work. Yeah. Well, there's been a lot of work done to elevate the um, disparity in these white-led organizations. That you know, uh, I, you know, I think that is good, important work to say. Um, you know, look at the boards look at the staffing, look at the leadership of the organizations, look at the communities that they, that they represent and knowing the, like noting for years, um, the absence of people of color, but it can't possibly be just a cosmetic thing. Like, you know, getting people of color on staff or on boards is, is representation is important. It is certainly the tip of the iceberg. I think what we, we don't, have and real on that, trust. And, and on that, yeah. Mia, I know that just so that you bring that point. And on that, we know Danielle, who was part of Green 2.0. And I know I'm on the board now of Green mm -hmm. 2.0. And we know that we've seen report to report that these are hostile, these are these, these are just cosmetic, these are hostile environments. Yes. Yes, that's right. So, like what's underlying that? Um, and why they're, you know, what, what we need to get to the point where we have trust is when there is real alignment with people of color and our solutions, when there is actual real partnership, hmm. not a top down, like where, you know, philanthropy decides what's right. And then they decide they'll give money to the people who do what they decide is right. <laughs> you know, that, that is, uh, when you, when you understand that institutional racism is at work in all these places, um, that that is not going to lead to the results of, a um, of a more just, uh, freer, fairer, healthier, um, environment for the people who are on the front lines and have been the most impacted by, um, the intersection of racism, poverty, and pollution. Uh, that why and one of the reasons. So to, to answer your first question about the WeJack 
you know, because it's, it's kind of related. Like, why do we put ourselves in, in these institutions mm-hmm. um, when we know that, that there, that there is, um, there has been a misalignment <laughs> to say the least, you know, for um, all of history. Um, I do think that uh, there I, I don't want to, I don't want to be Pollyannic or to put like all our eggs in one basket or say like, because this we've created this, because this uh, advisory council has been created that equals somehow like all the solutions. But I will say that, um, you know, the Biden administration, not because of the, of the kindness in Biden's heart or because of um, a sudden, you know, recognition that that these issues are important but because of the organizing work that's been done over decades in frontline communities the biden administration has has been forced to recognize that we need a full government approach to environmental justice and to climate justice we we that the that justice 40 is is it's like a goal setting uh vision that came out of our communities it didn't and and the fact that the Biden administration has opened up leadership from environmental justice communities, from BIPOC-led organizing leaders to, to be part of the administration, to be part of thinking through how do we address this massive inequality in our country. Um, I wouldn't be sitting on the WeJack if I didn't think that that opportunity was real. Um, that said, you know, we're only at the very beginning and I, am not saying like we've won just by, by creating the weed jack or just by, just by being there. That's like step number one. <laughs> it's not, it's not the win. Um, but I'm also there because I feel like it's so important for, for all of us who have been in this work on the ground for so many decades to make sure that our voices are heard in the halls of government and the highest places, that there's so many lessons to be learned from both the successes and the failures in California, where our movements have made a lot of, uh, of great strides and progress. And you see some of that actually, refl- I see some of that reflected in some of the priorities of the Biden administration, some of the stated priorities. But, you know, the, the proof is proof is in the pudding like that it's it's we're at the very beginning of like we got to see some results from this um and that's another reason why we're there for the accountability to say not just like here is what we expect of the administration here's what we expect of the whole government approach to environmental justice not just like cordoned off with the EP but through every agency, Department of Energy, you know, de- the, the, the all like Department of Housing or HUD and all, all of the different agencies combined have to have a, an aligned approach to environmental justice and to, to climate justice. And, and part of the WEJAC is to hold the agencies accountable to these standards. Um, and if we're not there, then there's there isn't that voice, but there's many places like the WeJack is just like one particular um, particular structure inside of 
the, the, the government that I think it's a new experiment. It's good that it's there. We should use it for all that we, we can. And um, we need to see that approach replicated all throughout government agencies um, from, you know, our, from our local municipalities to our state governments, to, to the federal government. And, um, you know, it's, it's part of our communities being able to, you know, the WeJack doesn't have a lot of power, but we need to, we need to be self-governing. You know, we need to be in, um, in these positions to, to be able to make the transformational shifts that are needed and to change the role of government in environmental justice. Thank you for that. And, and, I, and just to be clear, for those listening, I'm happy you're there. I'm happy others are there. Um, me too. <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm happy for that, but this still goes back to that trust word, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I I can trust you, I can trust some others, but the question really isn't about one or two of us being there. It's the whole system. It's the system right. of literally what we're saying. That you know, Danielle said it. She did the, you know she said it earlier that this is there's been each year there's hundreds, if not millions, if not billions of dollars that are literally put into this issue to fight mm-hmm. this crisis in which there's only a small percentage of that that is going to um, our communities and our organizations. And we literally said they have people who are dying, like literally in our own mood, not only for the crisis of cancer and emphysema mm-hmm. and everything else and asthma, we're saying even within our own movement, because they are so underfunded, they're dying. And now, even this moment, how do we trust literally those in these positions? Because we also know that the politics goes to these large organizations and they prop mm-hmm. up by what they're doing. And they that's how they get resources. So, and Danielle, you're the perfect person. You are the unicorn for this, for this answer because you've been on all sides, including evaluating this. How, how do we trust? So that we can we can move this ball forward because I think if we can get past that, then our movement can be healthy um, and do some things. But we can't really go past until we fix that, figure that one out. We have to go in because we have to fight the battle on all fronts. And the question is, how do we work together to arm ourselves to push? Um, to folks that might be listening who are within one of these big green institutions um, or within one of these foundations, um, thank you for fighting the good fight. Um, I know what it's like to be inside fighting the good fight. And sometimes that is tougher than uh, fighting folks that are clearly enemies. Sometimes the conversations with people that operate and deal with you on a day-to-day basis that mean well and yet keep doing the same thing over and over um, is just takes a toll on your mental health. Um, but we have to go in and have to fight. And the way we have to lean on each other and not just be um, martyrs, right? So um, you, Reverend Yearwood, have helped me fight. Mia has helped me fight. Um, we have to do it uh, together. And also, uh, you know, I might not be trusting everyone around me, but I'm trusting in the Lord to give me the strength to connect with those that I need to connect with to be able to at least do my part in the relay. And there was a time for me to 
fight and be on the inside. And actually with the first one joining the Hewlett Foundation, um, I was very naive and didn't know what I was going into, but I was lucky that there were elders that had started an organization called the Association of Black Foundation Executives. They had a fellowship program and that was my power base, my source of support on how to navigate um, in these spaces. Um, and then there was a time to leave. And I want to emphasize that as well. Um, Professor Dorsita Taylor, the amazing, you know, environmental justice scholar, as you know, uh, did a report a few years ago in collaboration with Green 2.0 on diversity in environmental institutions. And she interviewed so many of these young folks that, you know, got sent in, read all the brochures that had all the diverse faces and all that, and uh, then left scarred, right? Um, we have to fight a good fight but also have to remember to take care of our mental health and connect with each other. Reverend Yearwood, I know you're sitting um, at the institution you're sitting at and that it's making a difference to mitigating some harm and putting some resources in a good direction and to some young person at that organization that is moving up that knows there's someone else um, fighting with her. Um, we know that the institutional Racism is real, but I also want to point to some advancement and progress. Mia Yoshitani is sitting on the White House EJ Council. It's not because, um, you know, the groups that are getting 50 and 100 million dollars said, hey, Biden, we really need you um, to do justice right now. We got it. Um, it's because of the decades of work that have led to this point. And now we need to hold uh, the administration accountable as they try to, as they're saying, and at least saying no, saying all the right things, it's a start. Um, and this is why this money question and this climate funders justice pledge that the donors of color is, is collaborating with movement leaders on is so critical at this time, because this is a time, Biden said himself, of, of peril and of opportunity. We got to this point because a minority progressive white folks um, and a majority and supermajority of black and brown folks um, was able to get Trump out, um, at least at the White House. We know he's not gone. And it's going to take that same coalition, as you know, Reverend Clyburn and others have said, to build the power and organizing that we need. And there are some folks that are coming along. What this campaign is trying to do is say we need speed and scale. We're glad you've been sitting in a lot of DEI meetings. We're glad folks are reading White Privilege, the New York Times bestseller list. People really moved last year. Um, and but by by a lot of the, the protests and other things that you've seen. My my son thinks it's normal where I'm in Tacoma Park to have white folks with Black Lives Matter signs on their lawns. And sometimes I walk by and I'm like, hmm, wow, okay, you know. <laughs> um, so there is. There is progress. What we need now though is speed and scale because the climate crisis is here. Um, there are solutions um, and we can get where we need to go. And if philanthropy shifts, it will help accelerate that. Dania, I agree with you. And I want you to, to kind of break down the Donor of Colors Network and Donors of Color Pledge. But I, I need to add this to what you just said though. I agree with you and I'm grateful for you, 
where you are, where Mia is and where she is, for Dr. Wright and Dr. Bullard, everybody, you know, on the boards that I sit on. Is, I'm glad. That's good stuff. But what we're talking about here, though, is really equity and justice. What we're talking about here is not just a few of us sitting in high places that they would say, a, 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 as they would say, either a black face in a high place or a person of color in a high place. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about here is that all the young people who are out there in the streets putting their lives on the line in a, in, in a pandemic to fight for racial justice. What we're talking about here is the fact that there have been so many organizations that have been underfunded while people have parachuted in, people to fund that work. What we're talking about here is a situation where on this show, which is, you know, I didn't know when we started the coolest show. It would become it has become almost like a therapy session for people mm-hmm. of color in the movement. I we have, I, I mean, and we've had folks who've been around from Dr. Mildred McLean um, to uh, Elizabeth Ann Pierre, Jackie Patterson to Youth vs. Apocalypse and Generation Green, young people. And the one thing they all say. They all feel victimized at some point by this very issue of resources mm-hmm. in the movement. This is the ongoing, this, this is the common thread here. That what what for you and Mia and for you, Danielle, this is the common thread that caused the most pain. That they feel sometimes that people take advantage of the fact that they want to fight for their people and they know it and they almost underfund them to do this work, killing them. In the process. So what I'm saying to you is this, is that how long do we prop up that system? You know what I mean? Like, we know we're we, we going to fight. We're we going to fight against petrochemical companies, listen, and catch up. We gonna, I'm, I'm going to join me out there and fight against Chevron out there in, in Oakland. I, listen, we're we going to throw down. That's not the question. We, gonna, we, we got wisdom on top of wisdom. That ain't the question. The question here is this. If every single year, hundreds of millions of dollars do not go to our community to fund our work and to fund our organizers, when do we say enough is enough, Danielle? Let me just back up a little bit and explain the Doing This a Color Network. Um, It's a group of uh, people of color who made enough money that they're operating in these donor circles. Um, and the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, others are coming to them and say, you know, your people are suffering the most, give us money, right? And they were frustrated by the lack of attention to their progressive, uh, by their progressive friends to racial equity and justice and said, you know, enough is enough trying to influence these spaces sort of, you know, one-on-one. We have to collectively get together and mobilize uh, not just resources, but influence to make sure that this enough is enough message um, becomes something that is talked about in 
the mainstream media and we have to also uh, put pressure on these organizations, engage our legislators and others to say enough is enough. The accountability is going to come if we get the help from everybody listening on this show um, to make sure that we uh, raise our voices and make sure that this doesn't remain a hidden figures story. We know the story of hidden figures. Everyone's like, my goodness, there were a couple of black women that helped us get to the moon, my Lord. Well, you know, for the environmental movement writ large, um, leaders like Mia and others are, were hidden figures. Now they're, you know, in, in a lot of sort of key places. Um, and, Government has voters to hold them accountable, and you can kick government in or out. You got to fight for it, but you can, <laughs> right? At times, um, even if it's imperfect, um, there are other mechanisms that hold others accountable. Philanthropy is not accountable and has to be held to account, and it's going to take uh, every. Uh, ounce of organizing and celebrity and other things that we have to make this a very public issue. And some of it is changing. Again, we're talking about speed and scale, right? So on our website, um, for instance, with the climate.donorsacolor.org, if you want a two-minute summary that you can share with your friends to make this make folks more aware, um, Rosario Dawson, who was, you know, a connection through one of the donors of color, narrated the, the two minute video. Right. Um, we've got a lot of press across the country and more to come. We are profiling movement leaders so no one can say, oh, where are they? You know, if I had to write this pic check, I somehow can't find them. We have the most current list of PhDs across the country that work on climate justice. Um, but for those that are listening, um, if you are in uh, a position where you know, for instance, uh, journalists in key places, um, if you happen to, you know, I know Rev, you run with a, you know, you have some celebrities in your network um, and there are others that want to join uh, Rosario and helping to bring attention to this and helping to host something. Um, we are doing everything we can to say loud and clear enough is enough because what allows the foundations and others to get away with this often is uh, the fact that they can try to keep the story quiet. So frankly, a lot of the foundations we suspect who took our call were nice and polite. Many of them said, wow, 1.3%. I actually didn't realize some of them didn't. And now we're saying, great. Now that you realize, what do you do? And they said, well, we need to go count the numbers really carefully and it's going to take us months, et cetera. Um, and they might be just waiting us out. Uh, they're going to have to wait a long time. Um, so we have to all collectively leverage um, everything that we can bring uh, to say enough is enough. Because here's what these foundations care about, their image. They really want to be seen as the good guys doing the right thing. And the more we can make it clear um, that this is wrong and immoral and not strategic and all the other things that Mia said, and you actually then have to get rigorous about change and inviting movement leaders to give you advice on what you do and how you do it and correcting this disparity, um, things will shift. 
Me and Danielle, I just really have time for just two more questions. And so, Danielle, I want to start with you, kind of piggyback on what you just said, and mm. then allow you me to bring us home here. Um, Danielle, so if folks want to support the donors of, donors of color, right, um, uh, and they want to support this process, you're right. I, I believe you are and what you're doing and, and others um, – that this is the solution. I, I, I firmly believe that to stop what has been happening, um, to really build a level playing field, that we need a strong donors of color network, to be honest. Um, I also feel that those in the foundation world need to give you, need to do a little bit of some, giving you some money directly. Um, so that, that I think that too many times that a lot of the groups compete with the groups. And so they need to just say, like, listen, instead of giving this group just 100 million or 150 million or 300 million, whatever it may be, we're going to give those of color, you know, 20 million and 40 million each one. So it adds up that you become one of the biggest portfolios. Um, how do we get there? How, how do we, I, I want to see that. I want to see that happen. I, I, I want you to have the celebrity push. Uh, what's the next step for you to, to get to that point so that donors of color is one of the largest um, grantees for our community. Um, but also, and I didn't ask this question earlier, and I'm assuming because we're obviously on the coolest show is climate. Do, do, don't our colors fund only climate, actually? And do we fund other things for our, our, our liberation for our people? So how do we get you there to be the most, one of the largest entities to fund, and funding for our people? And then what else do you fund besides climate, specifically in the liberation for our people? Um, so first, let me say, get the resources to me and the movement leaders directly, not the donors of color per se. But if you have enough to spread around, great. One of the things we highlight on the website are about 10 or 15 of the most influential um, networks around the country. It's just a window into networks that have many members. And so that if you're listening and you are the type that uh, you're on the board of a foundation, um, ask them, hey, are you funding any of these influential organizations? And are you taking this pledge, right? Because if all the funders take, if if even half the funders do most of what we want, we can drive $100 million more at least and potentially billions in the next few years um, to organizations like me as who are delivering the highest return on investment for your environmental dollar <laughs> uh, at, at this point, right? It's amazing what they get done um, with a fraction of the resources that others get done. Um, so, so fund those leaders. In terms of um, the Donors of Color Network, um, I am a consultant and an advisor to the network. I'm not the type of person that can write, you know, totaling $2,000 a year to various causes. But if that fits your description, um, I'm at uh, Danielle at DonorsOfColor.org, Danielle at DonorsOfColor.org, um, or you go online, there's a contact us button um, because uh, the, the, the donors join the Donors of Color and what it brings is a community of folks that are strategizing together with leaders like uh, Mia and, and others um, and here's how they're doing their philanthropy, not like the big funders typically are, in that these donors could have said, we made our money on, you know, 
Broadway, corporate, whatever. And so we suffered the discrimination and we, you know, succeeded and we have enough money to give away. So let's decide what we think Mia needs. They didn't do that. They said, we um, know a few things about how we got successful in our career, but when it comes to how we build power for our communities and how we shift money from those big giant funds of money that dwarf theirs to get them um, to organizations that are accountable to our communities. We need the advice of the folks that are the experts on justice and equity in the environment. And so half their advisory board is movement leaders. If all the foundations did that, we would see different things happening, right? Um, and so uh, the last thing I will say is with regard to your question of, is this all we do? Not at all. Um, this is a relatively new network. It's a two years old. Um, and they did a bunch of research to see, uh, you know, who's out there that are folks of color and are they connected and are organized. And, and now that there's, you know, slightly more wealth in the community and so much of it is concentrated at the top and with corporate folks, how do we get together? Um, and so they're looking to, to grow that network. Um, but one of the first things that they did was actually in engaging with the Democratic Party. So the 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 DLCCC and others, as you might imagine, with the danger of Trump coming in for a second year, for a second term, um, came to the Donors of Color Network and they're like, oh, please give us money so that we can go win the election for people. And the Donors of Color said, hold up, uh, if we are going to give you a donation, we want to look at what consultants are you hiring? What is your diversity like? All those key questions so that they were leveraging whatever money they put in to help generate change on a scale that is higher than just their donation alone. And so there was a headline in Politico, um, one of the DC you know, uh, political news outlets saying, donors of color attach conditions to their cash. Um, that if you're going to come to us and say you want support, uh, we want to make sure that you... Uh, are treating all our people um, effectively no, and, and well, no matter where you are. So that, that was one of the first things they did. But climate rose to the top as a key issue because, not just because it's a danger for our folks, but also the transformation that is going to take place to clean energy economy done well can be a source of tremendous wealth. Um, and they want to make sure that we um, direct and change that waterfall of dollars um, to make sure that a bigger share of it goes to folks like Mia and others to make sure that we realize that dream. Mia, uh, you get the last question here. Um, and it's unfortunately, Danielle said so much in her great answer there that it's not going to be an easy question. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> that Sorry. She, she, <laughs> she was saying things that I that I, I have to all put into this last question. Uh-oh. Uh so uh here it is. Um and this so I'm I'm a, I'm gonna phrase it this way. Um, because she said a lot there. I'm going to say to you, Mia, then, because we're actually very, very similar. We're both here, both sometimes in the suites and in the streets, as they say. And mm -hmm. so this is my question to you. We've had this amazing conversation about resources, about the EJ movement, about getting money to our people. I 
want to get Donors of Color Network to be large. And I don't care what Daniel says. I still think we're going to get them all that money that they need to get so they can be a powerful source. Um, and I think groups like yours and others should definitely be funded. But this is the question. When do we get to the point when our organizations have money and in which they fail, everything doesn't go down with it? Meaning for years, people have put forth issues from supporting the Marky Waxman process and millions of billions of dollars into that process. And they failed and they still get to do what they're going to do. People have come up with all kinds of ideas to fight the climate crisis. And, and they have, man, they've been, they've, they've gone down in utter smoke and they've been millions of dollars. Our community is not allowed to fail with resources. We're not allowed to have that freedom. If we're giving this a little mm-hmm. bit of money, the pressure is on. We have to succeed, mm-hmm. not only for us, but for everybody coming behind us. That's a lot of pressure. When there's more money out there, when do we get to the point, specifically for our young people who need to sometimes fail in doing Absolutely. this work? Get the money and be like, oh man, it ain't the end of the world. When do people of color get to that point? We're not just getting, not the scraps. We're really yeah. getting real resources. <laughs> yeah. So much to say in there. Yeah, you didn't give me an easy question to end on, but um, I have so many feelings about this. I mean, the, here, I, I think to simplify it, I think that we are well past the point where institutions like philanthropy and i know we're talking specifically about philanthropy and and money in in philanthropy right now but you know it applies everywhere we 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 have to decide are we willing to lose in order to maintain the status quo that's based on white supremacy you know are are we willing to continue to do what we know doesn't work so that we can continue to maintain these systems that refuse to trust communities of color and their power and solutions. Until we get to that point, you know, I, I it, I think my, so Heather McGee, who wrote the the book, Some of Us, really encapsulates this this point. And I think philanthropy is just another example of that, where you say, like, philanthropy is willing to throw money at these big institutions that continue to fail rather than funding the power building and the organizing and the solutions coming from communities that are actually have the vision, the direction and the power to win what we all need. I think that has to be a real come to Jesus moment for philanthropy. 
And, and I, I don't want to say that's the only thing that's not, it's, it's not the only thing, but it is a really key, important part of building this ecosystem where we can all thrive, where we can all win, where we all have justice and where, where we can address the massive inequality that's hurting everybody. I don't, I, I just can't say this and they're willing to hurt them. Like these white institutions are willing to hurt themselves by continuing this cycle of, of, of defunding and, and unresourcing the communities that really hold the key to our, to our, our common success. And I, I, I like, I think that we have to make that absolutely clear and you're right. You know, like, I can't tell you how many grants that I it's there's more work in a $5,000 grant <laughs> than there is in a million dollar grant. Not that we've ever received a million dollar grant, but I'm just saying, you know, it, it's, it's incredible the amount of, um, of disrespect and distrust that goes into those relationships and, and the, at the root, at the core of it is this maintaining of these, these institutions that continue to, to distrust the value of our leadership, the value of, of our, of our solutions, um, the value of our voice. And until philanthropy is confronted with that and, and is held accountable to that we're not going to succeed so i i I think that we we really can't afford to continue to prop up this system um we we don't have we we don't have time anymore to waste this 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 the the fight the critique on on all these institutions but philanthropy is what we're talking about. Like it's been decades, you know, not even 30, you know, it's been like 50, 80, hundred years that we've been talking about this. And, uh, you know, just like so many other parts of these systems that support institutional racism, it has to change. It has to change for, for all of us to succeed. Mia Yoshitani, executive director of the Asian Pacific Environmental Network and Daniel Dean, climate advisor of Donors of Color Network. Thank you. They are our guests today. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Thank you both so much. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.